0: and welcome to the paradox podcast my name is craig and i am one of the pastors here at paradox church in redlands i want to say a special thank you to our donors who make this podcast and the work of paradox possible by donating at paradoxgiving.com another way you can support us is by writing us a review on apple Podcasts, because it helps get the word out about what we're doing here now we are currently in a series on biblical contradictions and today we are wrapping up that series by taking a look at the Bible and what role it plays in our life. Today's teaching is entitled The Bible's Contradiction." started this series by opening Proverbs chapter 26 and looking at verses 4 and 5. These two verses are in direct contradiction with each other and it challenges the doctrine of inerrancy. Now inerrancy is a fancy word for saying that the Bible is perfect and without error or without contradiction. Those two verses invited us into a deeper discussion about where the doctrine of inerrancy came from and we discussed how it was a relatively recent invention in the Bible's history. In the second week of our series, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and the fact that the Bible holds two contradicting accounts of how the world and the universe came into being. In the third week of our series, we looked at Exodus 33, in which one chapter tells us that Moses spoke face-to-face with God as a friend, and then later tells us in verse 20 that if Moses ever looked upon the face of God, he would die. In the fourth week, we talked about Joshua 6 and how God tells Joshua to go and kill all the people living in Jericho and the contradiction of Matthew 5, where Jesus Christ, who we profess to be the Son of God, tells us that we are known as the children of the Father in heaven if we love our enemies. Then in week five, we looked at the contradicting accounts of the life of Jesus Christ from Nazareth. And in those contradicting accounts, we found that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that Jesus cleared the temple in Jerusalem at the very end of his life. John, on the other hand, records that he cleared the temple shortly after his first miracle in which he turned water into wine. Then two weeks ago, we looked at a troubling passage in the book of Colossians. In chapter three, Paul talks about how slaves and free people are equal in God's eyes. And just at the moment, we're about to cheer for the equality of humanity. A few verses later, Paul writes that slaves must obey their masters. And then last week, Pastor Mandy invited us to take a look at 2 John. In this short letter, John tells the audience that they will be known as Christians by how well they love each other. In that same letter, Paul says, But whatever you do, make sure you don't love the Gnostics, because they are beyond love. Over the past seven weeks, we have talked about seven different contradictions and what they can teach us about God. Which brings us on this final week of this series to the Bible. The question I want to ask in regards to the Bible today is this, if the Bible is filled with contradictions, then does it have any value at all for us today? I mean, shouldn't we just pitch it if it's inconsistent and incongruent with the major themes that it tries to espouse? What value does the Bible have if it's filled with contradictions? Not only that, but when you consider the problematic ideas that are also in the Bible, whether it's homophobia or sexism or xenophobia, the question really is, should the Bible have any value or any role in our society and in our lives today? In an attempt to answer this question, I want to tell you a story. But not just any story. I want to tell you my story. And the reason I want to tell you my story is because I've had a lifelong relationship with the Bible. And this relationship has changed a lot over the last 30 plus years. My hope is that by telling you my story, you may recognize bits of pieces of it in your own life story. And that this story may help you answer the question, if the Bible is filled with contradictions, then does it have any value in my life today? So let's go back to the mid-80s when I was just a kid. Now, I don't remember a day where I wasn't aware of what the Bible was. I grew up in a household that went to church on a regular basis and stressed the importance of the Bible and the Bible stories. Now, as a kid, I don't have many memories of people reading directly from the Bible to me. But I knew the Bible stories, and I learned about the Bible stories in one of three ways. The first way was through an animated TV series called Superbook. Superbook followed Chris and Joy and their trusty robot Gizmo as they were transported to biblical worlds by a Superbook, which was the Bible. They would then experience the biblical stories through modern children's eyes. And I have to tell you, I loved Superbook. The second way I would learn about the Bible stories was through felts. Yes, felts. I would learn about this at church school, Sabbath school. Some people call it Sunday school. I would learn about this week in and week out where teachers at church would put up felts and act out the stories with visual aids. And those visual aids stuck in my mind and have stayed there all the way into my late 30s. The third way I learned about the Bible stories as a kid was through an audio cassette series known as Adventures in Odyssey. This series followed an inventor named John Avery Whitaker who created a machine called the Imagination Station in which modern children could be transported back to biblical times and experience the biblical stories firsthand. Between Superbook, Feltz, and Adventures in Odyssey, I loved hearing the stories of the Bible. I don't have many memories of people telling me Bible stories as a kid that scared me or frightened me. And in fact, I just remember always being excited when people would start telling the biblical stories. And in looking back at my childhood, I know how some of these stories were presented and how there are some ethical questions there, particularly around the story of Noah and the flood and Joshua and the battle of Jericho. But when I was a kid, I have to remind myself that I appreciated the way these stories were told and these stories made me feel good because there was something about these stories that told me that I was loved and that I was safe. And for that, I am truly grateful. And I believe that is why I loved hearing the stories from the Bible. But I remember this changed when I started reading the Bible, particularly in a Bible study that took place around the fifth grade for me. You see, I was invited to a Bible study at my church for fifth graders that was in the book of Revelation. Yes, Revelation for fifth graders. Now, the book of Revelation contains a frightening portrait of God, and it discusses an apocalypse that is scary, whether you are five or you are 35. This Bible study was led by an adult, and this adult walked us fifth graders through the book of Revelation and showed us how God's judgment was coming, and we needed to repent and give our lives to Jesus in order to ensure our eternal life. Now, what's really crazy to think about is that in hindsight, I remember this leader coming across as being very gentle and well-meaning and kind in the way that he said all of these things, but all of these things really frightened me so much so that I started to ask questions. And one of the questions I asked the leader was, what about my family that doesn't attend church? What happens to them at the end of time when this judgment occurs? The leader very gently looked at me and said to me, Oh, Craig, that's a great question. It will be a difficult day when you have to say goodbye to your loved ones. But God has given them every opportunity to join God in heaven. And if they refuse, then they will be left To die. Now, I remember getting really anxious at that point. And I said to him as a fifth grader, "Um, I'm sorry, how am I supposed to enjoy and be happy in heaven when my family members have died and aren't there with me? And his response was, he said, Oh, let me take you to Revelation 21. And the leader read the verse, God will wipe away every tear. This answer, as a fifth grader, brought me no comfort. Shortly after that moment, there were two other moments that I need to tell you about in the sixth grade. About a year after that Bible study, my teacher at church school was obsessed with end time events. She was convinced that Jesus Christ was coming back before the year 2000. And while that may sound like good news, the problem was that she believed that a great persecution was coming. And this persecution would really test the faithful to see who remained adherent to God's laws and who would fall short when push came to shove. I was scared of Jesus Christ coming back because I did not want to live through that persecution. Which brings us to the last event that happened in sixth grade, when that same teacher was convinced that us sixth graders needed to take revelation more seriously. She invited a guest pastor to come and speak, and he showed some slides. And these slides were frightening. He showed us pictures of beasts rising out of the water and devouring bodies. He showed us pictures of hornets stinging people relentlessly. He showed us pictures of stars falling and explosions happening on the surface of the earth. And he told us that a great shaking was coming. A persecution was about to happen. And we need to get right with God and take God seriously rather than turning to the ways of the world. One of the ways that people turn to the world, he said, was that women wore jewelry. And this guest pastor said, with great certainty, mind you, that jewelry will not be allowed in heaven, and the women who wear jewelry today will not be able to leave their jewelry behind in heaven. Now, this was very concerning to me because I love my mom, and my mom, uh, you know, likes jewelry. It's fine. It's fine. Now, back in 1996, she wore a little less jewelry than she does now, right? paradox has apparently freed her from the burden of jewelry. But I tell you this because I remember that my mom wore a bracelet a few days before I heard this pastor telling us that jewelry will not be allowed in heaven. So I raised my hand and I said, you know, I think you're talking about like really glitzy earrings or glitzy rings, right? Like if if my mom wears a bracelet, she'll still get into heaven, right? And the pastor looked at me dead serious. And he said to me, I'm not sure how God's going to get that bracelet off if your mother puts it on. Okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I laugh about this now, but when I was in sixth grade, this terrified me. And terror was a new feeling that I experienced toward the scriptures. And what's interesting to me is that as a fifth and sixth grader, there were adults who were in charge that had a real strong feeling that I needed a healthy dose of revelation in order to mature in faith. And I can tell you exactly what kind of impact that had on me as a 12-year-old. Revelation scared the hell out of me. Or maybe a more appropriate way to say that is revelation scared the hell into me. I wasn't scared of God or end time events or being separated for all eternity from the people that I loved. Like none of that was part of my childhood faith. And then all of a sudden adults were like, no, you need revelation. And it Put me into a posture of fear toward the scriptures, toward church, toward God. And there was a real sense, and I believe there still is a real sense across denominations, that mature faith is a faith that is afraid. This is a problem. And this is why so many people have such a feeling of resentment toward the scriptures. And from sixth grade on, I remember going to church out of an intense feeling of obligation. I remember singing songs, hoping that God was seeing me singing and that God would remember that when the end times eventually came around. I remember enduring terrible religious services and telling people I liked it because I had this sense that Maybe if God heard me telling people I liked the most mundane form of church, then God would think I was a better person. So weird. Fearful faith is a weird place to be. And I think most of us have been there at some point. For the next five years, I lived in fear. I had dreams about Jesus coming back and saying, you didn't make it. I, had, um, I just had all this guilt Around, you know, me going through puberty. I, there's just so many different things that always felt like I was just falling away and that God was waiting for me to mess up. This changed my junior year in high school when a teacher of mine, Pastor Mark Holm, invited me to junior-senior Bible camp. Of course, I signed up because, you know, wanted Jesus to remember that during the end-time judgment that I went to a Bible camp. <laughs> And I get up there and it's great. And, you know, I'm kind of engaged, kind of not engaged. We're like in small groups discussing things, but, you know, very guarded. I was very guarded while I was up there. Um, and I was just going through the schedule. I was following all the rules. And I sat down on Friday night for the worship service. And as I'm sitting down, the preacher starts to tell a story And as he tells this story, I realize this is a Bible story that I've never heard before. It was a story from the Gospel of John in which he tells the story about how Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, ends up betraying Jesus by denying him three times. Now, I had heard that part of the story before, but then he said after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus sought Peter out and asked him a question. He said to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. And then Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, again. And then a third time, Jesus asked, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, you know, I love you. Oh, and that story hit me right square in the heart. Like I started crying. There was this five years of pent up frustration and fear toward an angry God that was all of a sudden starting to break apart. This idea that Jesus would seek out Peter after Peter had betrayed him and not judge him, not cast him aside, not kill him, but instead say, hey, let's make things right. Ugh. Challenged everything I'd have been holding dear about God for revelation for the last five years. The pastor made an altar call. I walked up. I was sobbing. You know those people you roll your eyes at when they have those spiritual experiences? I was that guy, right? A few months later, I was baptized and I was said, I have got to start reading the Bible more because I want to know those stories like the story in John, where Jesus seeks Peter out and wants to make things right. Someone bought me a life application study Bible as a gift. I started having friends over leading Bible studies. Our high school chaplain, a man named Tim Gillespie, invited me to give my first sermon in front of the student body. I was just high on life, high on Jesus, high on the gospel. Can I get an amen? And I spent my senior year reading through a a lot of the convenient passages of scripture. (laughs) And I say convenient passages because I knew I wasn't going to go anywhere near Revelation. Not only that, but when I read the Old Testament, it really confused me, so I tried to keep that at an arm's length as well. Um, But I read the Gospels a lot, and I read the letters of Paul and the book of Acts. Like Those are the things I kept reading through my senior year, and that sustained me through college. And when I got to college at Montana State, I was pretty set in my ways and thought, hmm, I've got this spirituality thing figured out. And then I sat down in my very first class next to a guy named Tyler. We became friends. He is an atheist. I was a Christian. And I thought to myself, I might convert this guy. And I was wrong. (laughs) I was dead wrong. (laughs) Tyler grew up in the Christian tradition and walked away when he said to himself, I don't understand how there could be a good God with so much suffering in the world. And so as we talked, he asked that question, and I had never been asked that question before. Not only that, but he started asking questions about the Bible, like, why can you believe that God is good when God killed all of humanity in the worldwide flood that you profess happened in Genesis? Or he would say, Craig, why is it that you believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old when we've proven scientifically that it's much older than that? Or he asked the question, why is it that you believe, Craig, that you were born into the exact right denomination of Christianity that has more truth than all the other ones? I mean, are you just that lucky? And whenever we talk about Bible stories in particular, he would look at me and ask me a question that was incredibly intimidating. He would say, do you actually believe that? Now, what's interesting about that question is that question should not be intimidating at all. But when you've never actually asked yourself that question, then that question becomes very intimidating. Do you actually believe that, Craig? And all of a sudden, I started looking at stories, and I wasn't sure I actually believed that, even though... I was sure that I actually had to believe that in order to be part of the faith. So I stopped reading the Bible because I was terrified that I had to believe every story that was in its pages, and I wasn't sure that I believed every one of them anymore. While I was attending Montana State University, I was also going to church at the Mount Ellis Church in Bozeman, Montana. Now, the Mountless Church needed a few guitar players, and I didn't play guitar when I started, but I started playing guitar for church, and I loved it. So much so that I took lessons from my old high school chaplain, Tim Gillespie. And there was one day while I was taking lessons that Tim leaned over to me, and he said, like, why don't you just be a pastor? You can get paid to play guitar, and it's a great job, and I think you really like it. And I thought about it, and I said, yeah, I could see myself being a pastor. There's just one problem, Tim. And he said, what's that? And I said to him, I don't really like the Bible. It's just confusing and it's overwhelming. And uh, like, I'm not sure I actually believe all the stories in it. And Tim just looked at me and he said, meh, you'll learn to love it. And I thought he was crazy for saying that. But he ended up being right, which is really bizarre. I graduated from Montana State and then I switched my career path to go to ministry. Now I enrolled in grad school at the same time that I started a high school ministry program called The Fall and I preached and I liked preaching, but the real thing that I loved about this high school ministry was being able to play guitar and make music with other talented musicians. Now I also enrolled in grad school at La Sierra University and I thought to myself, this is going to be great. They're going to give me answers to all of Tyler's questions, and then I'll be able to refute Tyler's nagging questions and just play guitar in peace and enjoy my life as a pastor. But the first class I took at La Sierra did not give me many answers. It only gave me more questions. The professor told us, that there was no archaeological evidence that supported a large-scale exodus of slaves from Egypt led by someone named Moses. Not only that, but archaeologists have found the footprint of the city of Jericho, and it's very tiny. So tiny, in fact, that you could never place an army around the city of Jericho because it's just too small. And the idea of them marching around its walls is preposterous when you consider just how small Jericho is. Then the professor started telling us about King David, who is one of the heroes of the faith and his rival, King Saul. And the professor had the audacity to tell us that David was actually a terrible person. And Saul was much more admirable and easier to identify with because his story is our stories. This left me very confused. I didn't know what to make of the Bible anymore. If the majority of the stories in the Hebrew Bible were either made up or greatly exaggerated, then what was the value or the point of studying the Bible at all? To make matters worse, I enrolled at La Sierra University in 2008 which was a big deal in California history because Proposition 8 was on the ballot for that fall, and Proposition 8 sought to repeal same-sex marriage, which had recently been made legal by the California Supreme Court. Everywhere you went, people were talking about Prop 8, and the minute you said you were a pastor, people would say, so what do you think about same-sex marriage? So I was a pastor in training answering these questions that I found to be very difficult. And at the same time, also trying to be someone who could be hired by a larger church. And it was a very stressful time. So stressful in fact that I thought to myself, you know what, it's just better to maintain the status quo than to try things that are radical at this point in my life and in the state's history. So I voted against same-sex marriage in 2008. After the vote, a friend of mine found me and asked how I voted on Proposition 8. I told him, and he was mad, (laughs) understandably. And he asked me why I voted against same-sex marriage. My answer was, well, the Bible says that it's wrong. And upon saying that out loud, I all of a sudden realized that I had no idea what the Bible said about same-sex marriage. And I realized that if I ever wanted to be taken seriously as a pastor, then I needed to learn all of those verses that talk about same-sex marriage better than almost everyone. And so I started. I started studying all of the verses that discuss same-sex marriage. I started reading books that talked about different ideas and different contexts and what different words meant at different times. I gave everything I had. I was trying to piece this all together while also trying to be hired. I eventually got hired as a pastor. I had my first job as a youth pastor in 2009, and it was great. Loved playing guitar. Still stayed away from the more controversial Bible passages. But after studying for about three years all of the different angles about same-sex marriage and how the Bible relates to it, I came to the conclusion around 2012 that the Bible doesn't condemn same-sex marriage at all. It's not even close. There's barely an argument someone can make against same-sex marriage when looking at it from a purely biblical perspective. In fact, I would go one step further. Christian ministers are called to officiate same-sex weddings. It's the most Christian thing we can do. And for me personally, I got there through Bible study, as well as hearing the stories, particularly of my uncles, George and Tom, as well as seeing the movie Brokeback Mountain. Those were the things that changed my mind. In the same year that I came to that conclusion, I was hired as a college pastor at a church that is not too far from here. We started a college ministry named Shadow Ministries, and I was tasked with bringing college students into the church where there were hardly any. So the church turned to me after I'd been there for a few months. They said, so what's your plan to bring college students here? And I said, my plan was, we need to talk about the topics that college students are talking about. Because when college students walk away from the faith, it's because they want to talk about things and the church often says no. So I propose to the church that the first series we should do is a series called Adam and Steve. And this series, Adam and Steve, would focus on the six verses that Christians have traditionally wielded as weapons against same-sex marriage. And I told the church that my desire was not to tell everyone that same-sex marriage was right, but to show that these verses did not, in fact, condemn same-sex marriage, which was a big difference in their mind. (laughs) So I presented my sermon outlines to the board and told them exactly what I was going to say, and the board responded by saying, we'll let you do this, however... We want you to spread it out over a year and not make it a series called Adam and Steve. Instead, just one Sabbath, talk about this verse, then talk about other things for the next six, seven, eight, or nine Sabbaths, and then on the 10th Sabbath, come back with the second verse. We will support you if you do that. Now, I was a little disappointed to hear this, mainly because I liked the Adam and Steve graphic a lot, but I said, okay, Let's really do this then. Rather than bringing these sermons kind of randomly through a year, let's do the whole Bible. Let's draw it out and make it an eight-year sermon series and do all 66 books of the Bible. And then when we counter those verses that have been used as clobber verses, we'll talk about them when we get there. And when I presented this, the church looked at me and said, do you really think you're going to be here for eight years? Which I should have taken as a prophetic message, but I naively said, of course I'll be here for eight years. Why wouldn't I be? And so we started in August of 2013 with the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I suggested this idea, but never really thought of the ramifications But when I started prepping for our first series, I realized how different this was going to be. All of a sudden, we had to talk about the entire letter of the Corinthians. We had to talk about how Paul didn't write the letter of Corinthians to us, but he wrote it to the Corinthians. We had to talk about the thesis statement, the supporting arguments, and how each piece fit into the larger letter. And all of a sudden, I started to really appreciate what Corinthians said, And how it was different than the other books of the Bible, specifically what Paul wrote. Now, we started with Corinthians because it has one of those clobber verses that's used to justify homophobia. But when we got to talk about this letter, I was able to discuss that what Paul is condemning here is what we would classify as sexual assault or pedophilia, not same-sex marriage. This distinction is an important one, isn't it? Not only that, but I really enjoyed being part of the discussion that this sermon began and continued with people after the service. And all of a sudden, I felt like I loved preaching more than playing the guitar. We started rolling through the books of the Bible, and I loved what each book brought to the discussion. When we got to the Gospel of Mark, we talked about Jesus's difficult teaching, where he says that anyone who is divorced and remarried commits adultery. We did our best to put it into proper context to talk about the political ramifications of what Jesus was saying and how Jesus was commenting and condemning those in power who had abused their power through divorce. We talked about the story of Jonah, Where he goes to Nineveh and what people often forget is that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria aggressively attacked the nation of Israel and eventually led to their complete removal from this earth. And when Jonah goes and brings a message of God's forgiveness to them, it is not well received by the messenger. And it's revealed that this is a story of national forgiveness. We talked about this in the context of the attacks of September 11 and how our country had to do better at national forgiveness as well. We got to a book called Second John in which there is a contradiction that Pastor Mandy talked about last week where John says, love one another. This is how people will know that you're Christian. Except for the Gnostics, don't love them. And thinking of Jesus' words that we should love our enemies I remember standing up in April of 2015, preaching this sermon series, preaching on this passage and saying, I disagree with John. And oh, my friends, that was not well received. Because the whole idea is that you cannot disagree with the Bible. You have to agree with everything that every word says. It was so unsettling that a board meeting was called. And they said that I've created problems by disagreeing with John and saying it publicly. The board's solution was they came to me and they said, we need to remind people that you are a good Christian. So we want your next series to be in Revelation. Now, I remember saying to them, I don't think that's a good idea. But I eventually agreed to do the next series in Revelation. And if you're wondering how that went... There were only two more books of that church before I no longer had a job. (laughs) So after being removed from that job, a couple of my friends got together and they said, we want to continue to study the Bible together in this way. We want to continue this community that we found a lot of value in. And so we got together at the Schofields living room and we voted a new church into existence. Now, what was imperative to this group that started this church was they really wanted to keep this Bible series going. So we obviously couldn't keep the name, so we got rid of the name. We also changed the color from blue to red, and we called this place Paradox. And in February of 2016, we met at the Mission Gables Bullhouse for our first meeting. And we opened the Bible and discussed what we found there. A few weeks into our church's existence we celebrated our first doubt night. Doubt night revolved around the biblical story of Jesus's crucifixion. Now in the gospel of Mark and in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus's last words on the cross are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After uttering those words, Jesus dies in those two gospels. That story was so captivating to me that I thought, we need space for this in our faith journey. From that story, we came up with the idea that people could write their doubts down and we would read all of them aloud as a community to remind ourselves that all of us experience doubt and the absence of God as much as we celebrate belief and the presence of God. A few months later, we moved into the Mission Redlands, which is our current home, And we kept on rolling through our sermon series. One of my favorites was the Song of Solomon, which I had always been told was written by Solomon himself. There's just one problem. Solomon is clearly the villain and the person who speaks the most. And the theme of the whole letter is the feminine experience, particularly through this sacrament of marriage. The thesis statement of the Song of Solomon is my beloved is mine and I am his. And this letter, this poem is a scathing critique of the patriarchy that is often ignored by churches. I could not believe as we read through this poem how much it felt like it was written yesterday. How much it felt like it was speaking to our hour's need and how much it argued progressively For the image of God in the feminine experience. A few months later, we got to the book of Ecclesiastes. And as I read through Ecclesiastes, I thought to myself, this is a story about a man who once believed in God with all that he had and then walked away when he saw the suffering of the world. After reading those words, I immediately reached out to Tyler, and I said, you've got to come and speak a paradox about what it means and what it feels like to lose faith. Tyler came, he shared his story, and at the conclusion of his story, we simply said, we are now ready to talk about Ecclesiastes. A few months later, sometime around the year 2019, we studied the book of Nehemiah, which is all about a governor who is obsessed with building a wall between him and the people around him. And he's convinced people that this will bring about peace, justice, hope, and harmony for the people on the inside. Only to discover that once the wall was built, the people of Jerusalem turn on each other. Does this story remind you of anything else that might have been happening in 2019? Or is it just me? And then just a few months ago, during the pandemic, during remote church, we told the story of Mary Magdalene and how she once was referred to as a prostitute 500 years after her death and how Christians remember her as a prostitute, even though there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that she actually was a prostitute. Instead, she was considered the high priest of the resurrection And the men who have run the church for the last 2,000 years have simply not noticed her story that is so obvious in the Bible. Since 2013, we have done 59 books of the Bible together. And considering that we've done 59 books of the Bible, we then turn to the question, if the Bible is filled with contradiction, then does it have any value at all for us today? I have to tell you that from a very personal standpoint, that these 59 different sermon series have all been an attempt to answer that question. And when we started this series back in 2013, I wasn't sure we could sustain all of this. And now that we are very near the end, I have found that the Bible is much deeper, much richer, much more bold than I ever could have imagined it to be than when we began. You see, in my lifetime, the Bible has started a plethora of conversations about the things that matter. The Bible's value is in its ability to start discussions. And there have been so many different times and so many different ways that this book has brought a fresh word or a word that needs to be discussed To what we are facing today that I am in awe of the fact that we can keep going. I am often asked, what happens when we hit book 66? What will we do at that point? To which I say, well, we just start over. Because the Bible has more conversations to start. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. And we've been in this series for eight years. And if you're hearing me say all of this and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, Craig, but at my church or in my time going to church, the Bible didn't start discussions. It ended them. I would say, I know. I was there too. Remember that moment when I said, I disagree with John and how that was a problem. In environments like that, the Bible doesn't have value. Because the Bible is truly valuable when it starts discussions, not when it ends them. Now, what's interesting about all of this is I've often been called a liberal for doing this. But when you look at the way Jesus Christ went to worship services, they were very different than modern church services today. The whole idea was that you would go to the synagogue and sit around in a circle And someone would go to the center and read from the scroll, whether it was the prophets or the Torah or whatever it was, they would read what the passage was and then offer their commentary on it. And as everyone sat in a circle, a discussion would start as to what the words of the prophet or the law had told us and how that applied for their day. So something we need to remember is that the Bible started discussions at the synagogues of Jesus. And we actually honor the tradition when we view it as a discussion starter rather than a discussion ender. My friends, my wish for you today is that you may read this book and that this book may start inspired discussions in your life. And my second wish for you is that you may enjoy these discussions. And may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all the pages of Scripture and in all the discussions that those pages inspire. Amen.